You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I know you're waiting for our tagline, 40 years of. It's coming. First, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card, and you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. And now, Emeritus Rex. 40 years ago, this is Emeritus Rex. And although usually I say I'm here with Rabbi Ruven Yeshua Pupko, Rabbi Pupko is indisposed in a very positive way. He is leading the March of the Living. So I turn to my other learned rabbinical friend who can hold forth on so many subjects, someone that I'm uh, I, I'm honored really to know for so many years, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Rosenblatt. Rabbi Rosenblatt he has told me that you're also on your way to Eretz Yisrael, and you've taken time out of your busy schedule to talk to us, but I know it's about a subject that it doesn't take much to get you started, and that is, of course, about your great-grandfather, and that's one of the reasons why you're going to Eretz Yisrael, your great-grandfather being the great Yosel Rosenblatt, and his yard site is coming up on the 25th day of Sivan. And you are going to Eretz Yisrael, which is, of course, where Yosela died. And uh, tragically, at a, s- such a very young age of, you know, less than the, the, the Shonim of Shmuel Anavi. And you agreed to really talk about the significance of, of your great-grandfather, even for today's times. So thanks so much for being here and agreeing to speak with us, uh, Rabbi Rosenblatt. Well, it's wonderful to be with you again. Thank you for inviting me. You know, reading the the life story of of your great grandfather and your and your grandfather already wrote it. It's almost incredible how much he was able to accomplish in, in those years uh, that he that the Rebbeinu Shalom allowed him to 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 live here in this world. Aren't you amazed? I mean, you know the story so well. Don't you find the amount of uh, things that he was doing the uh, his his creativity the 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 amount of original compositions that he wrote, the involvement that he had with so many venues, it's jaw-dropping, don't you think? I would say, by our standards, perhaps, we have uh, elongated childhoods, and people don't get around to doing the things that really count until uh, quite an advanced age. But if you consider, number one, that many of the great chazonim passed away very young, in their 50s and 60s, but apart from that, look at the Gedolei Yisrael, who have left us some of the masterpieces of Torah literature. And you read that this one died in his 40s and this one died in his 50s, and you wonder, how how was that possible? So 
I agree with you. The Morgan Avram, the Arizal, and others who who uh, whose works will continue to be studied. William Voyant, but still, it, it seemed like there was so much more that uh, Rabbi Yosselva could have done, and. He really, in my mind, from reading about him, he really stands at the at the nexus of of this meeting the modern world head on that Jews in the twentieth century. It's probably you know the great struggle of trying to figure out how to balance modernity with a, a Torah a valued life. And did anyone do it with more grace and class and excellence than your great grandfather? I'm not sure it's a competition, but you are, you're certainly correct that he was at once rooted in not just tradition, but really in, in, in Yerushalayim, while at the same time, I mean, the great cleverness of his career was that he was catapulted to fame by the invention of the phonograph and the RCA Victor, the Vitaphone. Mm-hmm. And that did two things. Number one, it took him everywhere. Number two, it sold these technologies to very traditional Jews who had no other reason to bring these things into their homes than in order to be able to listen to Yossel Rosenblatt. So trusted was he that he almost, he, he gave a kind of uh, imprimatur to to these devices and to the whole idea of recorded music. He also stumbled, sweetly enough, although with some at some cost, upon the formula that modern music greats in, 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 in the general music field have discovered, and that is the the potent mixture of recording and concertizing widely. So that by the time he would arrive in a place, the people there were already so highly charged with a sense of knowing him because they had heard the records that an appearance by Yossel Rosenblatt was a uh, was a must a must attend event and and it seems that especially in you know in the, in the late twenties and thirties that his many of his concerts and even appearances in shuls carried with them a kind of a a fan frenzy that that we simply ha- we have never seen except in connection with popular music stars. that's right yes with rock stars when you read some of the reportage of uh, and again i only read the um the condensed versions that are found on, on some of the websites but you read some of this reportage about how people were elbowing and fighting to get in they they eventually of course one of the reasons why they had to start selling tickets uh, for Yom Naroyim was due to everyone's wanting to hear Rabbi Yossela. And, and this was the same truth, of course, of, of these concert venues. It, don't you find it interesting, though? You know, y- y- your great-grandfather was famous for his, and this is what I mentioned before, his ability to stick to the ideals of of Shmir's HaMitzvahs to the utmost. And, and, and yet, the whole Uvda of, of Chazonis is, is, is in a way very different. Now, I'm not saying there weren't Chazonim for hundreds and hundreds of years in Europe, Balit but what your great grandfather was doing was not just uh, you know, promoting, you know, Chazonis and his art in order to sell these records, but also performing 
uh, in venues like the Hippodrome, in the Albert Hall, the Chicago Opera House, all these places that, you know, Yidin would never have gone before. And whether they were going to have Yom Naroyim Davening or some sort of tefillahs there, it, it, it was interesting that he really pushed the envelope. And I know, you know, did you, did he have a mentor? Did he have someone? I know he was close to in his youth, as I read today to the Sidigera Achsidis, but was there, was there a guy that he went to? We know that he was an accomplished person himself in learning, but did he have someone who was whispering in his ear, giving him hadrocha in this way? I don't know that he considered any one individual his his Rebbe per se. I do know that almost everywhere he traveled, especially in New York and especially in Eretz Yisrael, he always had a close relationship with Hasidic Rabbeim, whether they were, you know, I mean, his his first alignment, I mean, as a youth, was uh, was with Chortkov, but. As uh, even as an adult, he was very close to the rabbeim, the early rabbeim in uh, New York. I know from testimony that he was very close to the Rachmistrifker in in Yerushalayim, and that has a great deal to do with the fact that he is he's buried in the Chelka, the Volin Chelka in Harazesim. Because that is the Rachmistrif Kachelka. Mm-hmm. So he had connections with Hasidic Rebbe's everywhere. The truth of the matter is, his theatrical period, when he went into uh, even, you know, aside from the fancy ones, the Hippodrome and the, the Prince Albert, he, you know, he, he appeared in virtually every large vaudeville venue yes. in, in the world. As a matter of fact, I remember that in my grandfather's library, there was a biography of the late burlesque star Gypsy Rose Lee. Sure. Who I only remember at the end of her life was a regular on some of the talk shows, uh, the afternoon talk shows. And I asked my grandfather, Papa, what are we doing with a biography so random of Gypsy Rose Lee. He opens it and he turns to me, shows me that she recalls from uh, from her days in her own days in burlesque what would what it would be like when Yossela Rosenblatt came into a theater. She describes his dignity, but all of that, all that came about because of the terrible financial pressure at the end of his life and his determination that none of those who had, had had lent money because of his name, even though he had nothing to do with it, he was merely used as a, uh, a guarantor, none of them would be given anything less than what they had invested. And he refused to declare bankruptcy mm-hmm. and to let them be paid off a fraction. I read that the, uh, what he had invested in and what was trying to be created is of course today very standard and everybody buys that as a, as a typical Shabbos treat is a Jewish English Yiddish Hebrew newspaper or magazine. And that, uh, that was called, it was supposed to be called Or Yisrael. Called the Yiddish Licht. Yeah. The Yiddish Licht. And I, I think it was supposed to be in three languages and it was supposed to be a, 
a, a media friendly place where Jews could help establish their community. And just like as newspapers were in a way, very similar to what we have today, you know, with Mishpocha or the Hamodia. In a way, I guess it was sort of like uh, a pioneer and forward looking into something that today uh, has become standard. And Gerard Rebbes and other Rebbes have said how important it is. So, but for some reason, the the financial wherewithal wasn't there. And I think it was coupled also with the uh, stock market crash and other things uh, that made a lot of these things uh, unviable. I, I'm sure that those factors are included. The, the truth of the matter is, as, as our family version of the story goes, what really drew him to this particular investment was the idea that it would serve as a vehicle to make traditional Yiddishkeit accessible and attractive to the young generation, the children of the immigrants. And of course it was, you know, the house was on fire. The rate of assimilation, even in, uh, in, in homes of observance and of learning was just, was just alarming. And he was assured that this would be a, uh, this would be a vehicle to, to stop that. And, and he, they, they probably weren't wrong. I mean, I have seen bound copies of the newspaper and the people who wrote for it. I mean, the list of stars who wrote for that. The only things we have in writing by Rafael Mendelovich. Rafael Mendelovich, the only written things we have from him, some of which are extraordinarily powerful, are there. Rabbi in his in his early years in America, Rabbi Leo Young, Zichron Livracha, the Jewish Center, was on their uh, list of writers. I mean, the the very the cream of the crop of thinkers and writers in New York Orthodoxy were were part of this. Uh, I'm sure that the management of the the finances that's a whole other specialty and and probably where it fell apart, but conceptually, it was absolutely brilliant. And it also reflects, again, his entrepreneurial vision of something that shortly thereafter would become, would become a major force. He was ready, the fact that he was, his voice was featured in the first talkie, the first talkie movie, and the fact that he's, he died making a film, he saw where that was going. Right. You know, before we, 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 we talk about the films, and of course, you know, Rabbi Rosenblatt, one of the things that, that we do on this platform is discuss old films and, 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 and silent and the first talkie. So I have a, <laughs> I, I'm getting ready to talk to you about that. Okay. But, but, but I wanted to ask you first, just, you know, obviously, you know, he had a, a large family, he had chayvus that he, that, that he, took on himself. Uh, as you say, he didn't want people to, to, to lose money. Uh, he was, very well known that some of the concerts that were begun after World War One uh, were there uh, totally as a tzedakah to funnel money to so many uh, displaced Jews throughout Europe at that time. So no one is questioning the philanthropic uh, aspects that of, of, of your great-grandfather. But yes, there was dachus and there was reason. It's interesting that the Rebbes understood, like, you know, that we to allow him or that he felt that he could go to those places. You know, again, without getting involved in halacha discussion, a place that the night before, you know, Gypsy Rose Lee was 
in a way, displaying her wares. And the next night, you might have Yossel Rosenblatt there. This is an interesting phenomena. Was this something also that the... Um, I mean, obviously, you you, know, you you can't don a person after the gilim koymai, but do you feel this was something that the, the, the rebbes were being meayitz as a dover toiv, not just to save him, to save the other people? At least this way, they're not going to Gypsy Rosalie because they're going to go to him. With the advent of the Industrial Revolution and the amount of leisure time that these kids had, despite you know the hard scrabble life they had to leave, they still had so much leisure time. So this was good that you had a a venue where you had a frumayid with a beard singing uh, nigunim. Some of them, you know, most of them, composed by himself from 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 the liturgy. Did they feel that this was something to combat, you know, some of the appeal of the the the, this, the concert stage, of vaudeville, and other things? Let's go out there and, and give them Yiddish entertainment, and this might be something positive. Honestly, I think that that is an anachronistic, a retrospective uh, kind of approach. First of all, you have to remember the the Rebbe's themselves were living on the margins. Life was very difficult to them. There were very few who wielded the kind of power that meant that anyone was asking their permission to do anything. Many of them, their own children, were not necessarily Shomer Shabbos. The idea of that kind of consultation and even the idea of, uh, you know, doing it as a proactive response, I think all of that took place incidentally. And as a matter of fact, much of what he's saying uh, was not liturgical. So, for example, my grandfather, Rocha, was a great linguist, transliterated into Yiddish letters the librettos of various operas so that he could sing arias in Italian and German, of course, he knew, but in Italian and and French. He was singing out of a little book with Yiddish letters. He had no idea what he Mm -hmm. was singing. He was very friendly with the great tenor Caruso, and Caruso heard him singing some, I don't know, some (laughs) love song from the Italian opera and uh, chided him that uh, that his you know he wasn't terribly believable in you know in his presentation and of course he had no idea what he was singing he was uh-huh. just singing the music and uh, the word is that he said to Caruso my dear friend let's hear you sing my Kaylee Kaylee Loma Zabtoni <laughs> and we'll see how it sounds <laughs> you know you sing what you know I sing what I know but he he was uh, and he he was beloved. Not only to Jewish audiences, he was beloved of the Irish and the Italian. When you know he he would sing certain chestnuts of the of popular of popular, the popular songs from the... of each of those nationalities, they would go crazy. I, I read today, Rabbi, that at, I think in the, it was maybe in the Hamburg Shul or one of the shuls where he was at, he was chided and pushed to incorporate a more operatic tone to some of the music that he was that he was using uh, as part of the liturgy and i i read that he actually and again this might be as you say uh, who knows whether it was true uh, that he actually attended some operas and that he actually had some voice training from people who were in the operatic field and he tried within his uh urva of 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 songs 
to inject an operatic style. Is am, am I am I misspeaking here on oh, this that's point? Absolutely correct. There's some of his pieces which are in in shape and context of musicologists will tell me it's undeniable are absolutely are, are absolutely operatic. What's uh, remarkable is that he was a kind of an omnivore. In other words, that when he saw things that could be mobilized, Altara Sakodish, he wasn't he wasn't shy or afraid about it. I mean, by the same token, it's a little hard for me to think of Hamburg as the source of that because Hamburg was a pretty buttoned up place. They didn't even let him repeat words, which for Hazen of his stature mm-hmm. was a real challenge and led to some of his most creative pieces. But I don't, I don't think that, I don't think there's any question about that, nor did, did I have a sense that he had any, any shame. The, the, the only uh, odd story that I know was much more haberdashery oriented. There's a, they say that when uh, he was in Presburg, the Rav in Presburg was, was very, very happy that he came in because he replaced a chazan who had been really an Amaritz and uh, someone with whom the rabbi had a lot of trouble. And so when my great-grandfather came in and he was, in those days, he was wearing a strimal, he was very, the, the rub the, the and the people all loved him. When he went to Hamburg, he traded in his strimal uh, his, his for a cylinder, for a high hat which was sort of a trademark of his through the rest of his career. And uh, when he came back on tour in the, in the 30s, when he came back to on his European tour and he was in Pressburg again, which of course, Pressburg is, a, is, is an important city in that region. Bratislava is the capital. I think it was the Bratislava Shul that he was the, uh, that he was the Chazanov. Yeah, and uh, the Rav would not let him down for the other. So because of the cylinder. Uh, wow. Because, you know, it doesn't take much to set off a Hungarian. <laughs> yeah. Which is interesting, as you say, because, you know, he was so, so in so many ways cosmopolitan. You know, clearly he was in a way changed what Chazonis was. Again, we know there were Balitvila. We don't necessarily have records of so many Nigunim, although, you know, Kol Nidre and other things have come down to us. But it would seem that this operatic aspect that your great grandfather studied and inserted then became, you know, standard practice for so many other chazanim after him uh, and along with him. So he was really uh, very much a pace setter for that. But I think I think it would be uh, people who know about these things. I think it'd be terribly naive to credit him or believe that the process of introducing other musics into the shul was was new maybe came in at a lower level they say in the name of uh, Nachman of Reslov that that the gentile nations go to war so that they can create anthems <laughs> uh-huh. to be to be sung in, uh, in 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 praise of the of the almighty that kind of a uh, folklore can only exist to explain the fact that the Jews were always taking. I mean, if you if if, if you were to subject the the traditional zmirus that we sing to the origins test, the number of them that harken back to certainly uh, our 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 dear friends of German Jewish origin, you eliminate all the beer songs 
Mm-hmm. You're basically just, um, you're yeah, going to be left yeah. with Kol Nidre, and that Rav Hirsch tried yeah. to knock out. So <laughs> there's not going to be much left. Yeah, well, it, there's no question about it. The Kalva Rebbe and others, uh, you know, used to pick up these Nigunim, as you say, that were in the beer halls and be mala them. But it's interesting, you know, Chazonis, when we were growing up, and we're, we're sort of contemporaries, it had a certain mode to it. It was the, it, it had those old Victorola sounds to it. And, and, and again, who were some of the architects of that sound? That sound, of course, is now, we're going to talk about the resurgence, but when we were growing up in the sixties and seventies, there was almost like, like an old style sense of what Chazonisha pieces were. I'm not saying you were ever put off by it, but my contemporaries were. They saw that as old style. And then, you know, you had, of course, the explosion of recordings in the 50s and 60s, whether it was the Rabbi's Sons, Rashi and the Rishonim, all the Pirchei music, uh, Karl Bach, of course, uh, his shadow is, is extremely great. And a lot of the, the, the Chazonis became a niche interest. And, 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 uh, I want to, again, I'm not forgetting about the jazz singer and everything, but, but it's interesting. You know, we talked before we started recording about the resurgent interest in Chazonis. Normally speaking, uh, before technology, music could only be performed by someone who was alive. The idea of competing with someone who was no longer alive with recordings, that's a whole, that's a, that's a phenomenon uh, of technology. And you, it, it produces such odd effects as uh, someone like my friend Hassan Helfgott, Salanga Yard, singing a duet with my great grandfather, you know, the recorded and the live uh, in duet together. This was, even though that's a, it, it's a very strange one, uh, it is nevertheless, in a certain sense, everyone who sings today is in a duet with their predecessors. The only difference is we have the opportunity to experience the predecessors as themselves, as opposed to simply experiencing them as their great grandchildren. I mean, when you think about it, you know, printing did the same thing. The idea that, uh, the, that the book survives the author, that Torah Shabal Peh became something which was freezable. So you don't have to, you don't have to only read the Talmudim of, you can read. You yeah, can read okay. The well, the difference is, is that we invest into these, the Ktsois and into the Nesivas and Turki Vega, a if not a modern sensibility, but a sensibility that we can explain it in our 21st century terms. And when these uh, svarim are once again brought out and used, they are used in somewhat of a, of the mindset of, of, of today. When you're talking about recordings, and again, I, I go back, and maybe again, you were a different type of child or a teenager than I was, but I remember it was the older people that liked to go to hear the Chazonis. They liked to hear Chazonish music. And, you know, the young people wanted a, a, a faster davening. They didn't necessarily want to sit there and hear a Tiru Rabbi Shmo that went on for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. Things did change. Uh, well, there's and, and a there- great deal of difference between Chazonis in a shul and Chazonis in the concert hall. When it comes to the idea that one went to shul to hear the Chazon and hear your local uh, practitioner do his best to replicate what was uh, a phonographic repertoire, 
you you might be correct. Certainly, the style of davening. But look, the style of davening and the uh, the syncopation of the rhythm of modern life has taken down much greater cedars than chazonis. I mean, it basically has rendered all of the yotzros and the piyutim extinct. I mean, the young is the young is the young Israel movement, which wholesale decimated, particularly the the machzor of the sholosh regolim. The Sholosh Regolim have become, with you know, minor exceptions like Tfilas Geshem, Tfilas Tal, and Akdomus, they have become interchangeable tofu, Yom Tov-like experiences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Processed Yom Tov. You, you don't even need, you know, everyone buys Bar Mitzvah Boys uh, a set of uh, a Archibald, Machzorim, Machzorim yeah. right, but, but you hardly need them. You just need to change the labels. We mentioned Hirsch before, who wasn't happy with uh, the excessive amount of attention Kol Nidre was given. Um, not that he had anything against the tune. He just felt that it was almost zeroing in on the wrong thing. The 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 congregants in Moravia would only come in for Kol Nidre and like that, and then they would leave afterwards, and they thought that's what Yom Kippur was about. And it is very strange, and I'm sure you've 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 held forth on its significance. But Hirsch wrote in the Choriv about how Piyutim were of course developed and and were authored and were studied and understood by a much uh, greater uh, scholarly audience the allusions to the various midrashim that the kalir uh, is throwing out or even menachem or yosi or or or, or shoma bavli these are needed as hirsch says a talmud chacham to really appreciate it the generation today doesn't have the time, you know, it, what was happening was they were davening them up. Davening them up seemed to have created diminished returns. Yes, it, it extends the davening, but it also extends it with verbiage and illusions that were beyond most of the Ashkenazi shulgoers' understanding. And because of that, I think, whether it was young Israel, whoever made the decision, even the Nitziv writes in one of his chuvas that they only have kept the piyutim for Shoshona Yom Kippur and some of the, some of the, the, the moyadim. Uh, as we know, piyutim are actually part of every Shabbos's, uh, uh, liturgy. So again, you're correct that the chazonis, the piyutim was a place for the chazonim to fly, to expand. Again, I, I, what I would argue from where I'm sitting is that we need, we need a, a, a better education system for the Piyutim, for people to understand what they're about. And, and people should be studying them the same way there should be Shiurim in, in Biure Tvila. And I think, uh, Rev Breuer, Zachrainu of Rocha, tried to do that with a number of attempts of trying to expl- to cut out, ex- explain the piyutim and give shiurim on them. So, yeah, piyutim is definitely, you know, it's intertwined, so to speak. And, and, and did Yosela have the shtiklach from all the uh, uh, the Yomim Toivim and the, uh, the Shabbosim? There are some very famous passages from, for example, his, his most beautiful Shavuos, Thing Shekin Reacha from the uh, from the Piyut of Shavuos is is a magnificent piece and mm-hmm. and just draws you draws you into the Piyut. But clearly, uh, remember that in the world of the Hasidic world is one place where they have not been rejected and eclipsed. 
and I think, you know, I don't want to sound acerbic, but had people who are as brilliant educators as, uh, you know, as the briskers turned anything like the laser of their attention into the world of Piutim, as they did in Kochim and Taros, we would be looking at a different, we'd be looking at a different landscape. And as you say, it's, it's, it's a question of the pedagogy of a, a kind of an anti-Tvila pedagogy. Going into your wife's family, however, we know this is part of what the Rav, you know, was not only in the Kinnis, of course, where everybody knows, but even in terms of various piyutim as well. He, he loved them. He loved these Nuschoyas and he was right. able to use them to teach such you know, brilliant and moving ideas based on them. And, and more than ex- give, making them sweet, he actually was able to show the halachic underpinnings of, of, of so, so many of, uh, of those passages, which of course would endear them even more to a yeshiva world. So I mean, you're the right. Rav, the Rav single handedly, the Rav single handedly transformed Tishabov. You want to talk about the, 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 they celebrate the Yiddishkeit of your, of our youth. Tishabov was a desert. It was the most numbingly boring, meaningless day with, I mean, certainly the Rosenfeld edition began making it possible, but those handheld, the tradition of only printing kinos as if you weren't going to use them next year was a wonderful expression of faith and a terrible expression a pedagogy. It was it was misery, and the rub single handedly. It's it's amazing. The there is no day which finds Orthodox Jews in more shiurim than the day which is Osir and Talmud Torah. <laughs> and thanks to the rub, they're not they're not in violation because the rub, as you say, tapped into the sweetness. Can you imagine if the rub had had the opportunity to do the same for the Hoshanos? If, uh, if, if the Rav had, had the opportunity, if people had come to sit with the Rav and say Yotzros on the Dalit Parshios, mm-hmm. what, what the landscape of our spirituality would look like. Yeah, again, it was, and even the Rav that the Rabbi Shalom gave him Arichas Yomim, but we know that, uh, you know, he was, again, had so many Chiyuvim and so many Chayvas yep. to the Yeshiva. And, and still, I think he opened up a, an approach that, his Talmidim, I think, have followed somewhat. You know, it really does take the type of learning, uh, you know, buy yourself a Goldschmidt Machser, you know, buy yourself, go and look through the Makairis. And I think that will, that at least you'll enjoy reading them and learning them in advance, whether you can necessarily sing them and enjoy them. I, I guess one of the things that, you know, as we're talking about the modern Tofa versus the old Chazonis. What I found, Rabbi Rosenblatt, and of course you were a Shulra for so many years, is that many nice Bali Tvila with, 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 with beautiful voices, they end up just taking the, the, the popular record that's going around and trying to sort of like shave it into <laughs> the Nusach somewhere. And because their audience is familiar with uh, that tune, Albeit in a little bit different words, they're very happy when it inserts itself into kedusha or into the chodoidi, uh, but not necessarily with any great chokma. <laughs> in other words, the type of understanding that these words need to match this music, and that again, going back to your great grandfather, 
I think that was a, a, a genius that he had. The the aspect of melody that melded, I'm again thinking about Tira of Yishmo and others, that how it melded so much with the words that were being conveyed. And that's something which, unfortunately, you know, I, I don't think these modern Bali Tvila, who are not classically trained in any way, uh, really understand. Well, there are different elements to what you're saying. First of all, just uh, to keep our brand name honest, I think the Tiher of Yishmar that you're thinking of is Chazan Kvartin. Is that Kvartin's? Oh, that must be Kvartin's, and yes. And Kvartin was, in his area, in his way, a, a genius, and also a very dear friend, and I might mention someone who is remembered with great, great fondness by our family, specifically, because although everyone knew that Chazan Kvartin never projected himself as a, a particularly devout chazan. Nevertheless, when my great-grandfather died unexpectedly in Eretz Yisrael and really penniless, it was chazan Kvartin and uh, Hirschman who paid my great-grandmother's passage to get back to America to be with her children. Mm. Chazan Kvartin was known as a wonderful Baltzadokah. Bal he also was an excellent businessman, by the way. He, although he is buried, I believe, in Westchester County, he was an astute man and invested money in real estate in Palestine. They were there at the same time. He was there. He and he and, and Hirschman were there at the time of the Leviathan. They sang at his Leviathan. They sang the Kelmoli Rachmim at his Leviathan. Wow. And, and, and Rav Cook was the Mosfet, as I heard, as, um, among yeah. others. Let's talk now about, you know, sort of my wheelhouse, which, of course, is movies and the history of movies. Your, your, your great-grandfather, we talked about his savvy and his understanding of the potential of new technology. Here, of course, was the melding of sound and pictures together. Although I read today that he was offered a pretty much a star role in the jazz singer, of course, the jazz singer was Al Jolson, who, by the way, was actually the son of a chazan. Uh, his father was a chazan in Washington. And Aza Jolson, the, Al, the, that first superstar of the movies, they turned to your great-grandfather, uh, Rabbi Yossel Rosenblatt, to star in the film as chazan Rabinovich, that would have been Jolson's father. And from what I read, your 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 great-grandfather refused uh, he did not feel the same way he rejected the various attempts to bring him into the opera, even, you know, Tyrus Akkadish, so to speak, where he wouldn't have to uh, get and sing with women and he wouldn't have to touch women. He wouldn't have to do anything. He could just come and be part of a, a role in some sort of Jewish form. And your, your, your great grandfather resisted 100 percent, despite the huge amount of money he would have made. Uh, he also did not want I heard the amount of money that the Warners were were offering was $100,000, uh, which was, at that time, in 1928, you can imagine, a king's ransom. It definitely was, and it could have helped him quite a bit, and he stood firm. However, I, again, you'll tell me, I know he recorded a number of songs that are on the soundtrack of the, of, of the, of the jazz singer, and you can hear uh, your great-grandfather on there, but he's not. he doesn't have that role. First of all, that's not, it's not precisely correct. He is... The chazonis on that, I believe, is chazon Moshe Oisher. It is not my great grandfather. However, the, 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 where he does appear is the trigger for the jazz singer, Jolson, to go back to the synagogue where his father is dying is that in Chicago, he passes a billboard that says Cantor Rosenblatt in concert. 
and he goes in and he hears him singing Yardzeitlicht or something like that, a Yiddish uh-huh. song, not, not a liturgical song, a Yiddish song. And he is so, and you see my great grandfather singing and just his, his presence and his dignity, I say, is the only thing in that movie that does not look like a cartoon. <laughs> that is the trigger for him to, to, to do tuva, so to speak. Okay, so you, he was he, your grandfather was the was the trigger for the Jolson character to do tshuva and to come on Yom Kippur and join his his father. And, and his that, father is upstairs in his, his father's in the apartment upstairs in the shul with a window onto the sanctuary because he's got now he was sick he wasn't able. I think to, he's dying in that. He's dying. Oh, by the way, I just the, want to tell you the actor that ended up taking your father's great great father's role was Warner Oland. I, Warner Olin was a Swiss, uh, from Swiss lineage, and played all sorts of ethnic characters. Charlie Chan. He was Charlie Chan, of course. He was, he was not, Sidney Toller, Sidney Toller and, uh, and, and, and Warner Olin were the two Charlie Chans. And I saw Warner Olin very often as Charlie Chan. So here he was, you know, the Charlie Chan ended up playing the, the role. Speaking of Charlie's, I read on the Wikipedia that when your great grandfather went out there to record the music and to be filmed, he actually spent a couple of maybe an hour or so. With another Charlie who Hitler thought was Jewish and the, the world thought was Jewish, Charlie Chaplin. Um, and Chaplin told him that, uh, he was a fan of his and that when Chaplin got depressed, he would put on Rosenblatt records. Yeah. And there's a very famous picture of the two of them together <laughs> of him shaking hands with Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. He was, he was, he was, he moved in a very high level of celebrity. <laughs> Yes, and and it's and 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 I guess he you know he recognized and we, we know the power of film. We know part of the reason why there was such you know like when we were in yeshiva, you might remember the mashkichim would say movies is moves. Your your, your great grandfather seemed to understand that this was a medium that could be used for such positive benefits, and that's the reason why, of course, as you mentioned before, we talked about him going to to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, to make a film about Eretz Yisrael, right? Uh, yeah. it, it was a film that would actually take him on location to various biblical spots. I know he was actually in the the, the Yarday, and he was singing. Uh, he was singing from Hallel, you know, Hayarday Tisov Lochar, which is. Uh, I, I think there there is some sort of, and, and that was an unfinished film, unfortunately. Yeah, um, it's on, it's one of the few films where. It stopped in the middle, but went on to film his funeral. Picture of the the throngs in the streets of Yerushalayim at his Leviah are are right there in the movie. Yeah, so, so it's, it's 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 a very unsettling film for those of us who are his family. And 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 yet the you know from the way it was described, you know, especially I, I was reading his Matzeva today. You know, it was his Ali first time in Eretz Yisrael. He had been all throughout Europe. He had been the toast of of everywhere. So, you know, this, this Aliyah and to, to sit by Rav Kook, Zechrein Lev you know, I don't know if you have, if you have a Messiah of what that trip meant to your, to your great grandfather. I know it was, he was in Meyasharim and Tel Aviv and all these places. And, and, and in the Makaymas that were so, he went to Kever Rochel and, 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 and sang Rochel Mevach Albanecha. I'm sure it was, it, 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 as much as it was entertainment, I'm sure it was it was so so powerful and meaningful. 
<laughs> I think, as, as as I said originally, you know the uh, the uh, the aspects of his life are are full and and can obviously our listeners can consult the the biography of that your grandfather wrote, and perhaps there has been other treatments as well, and one can find clips uh, available uh, through on YouTube and other places. You're going there, I know, is very significant. What, what do you think? You know, other than a, a, a very important historical figure, and I'll just add here the the great line that I always use from your your great grandfather, and maybe I've, I've 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 misattributed when they asked him why he was taking so much for the Yom Neroyim Tefila when I'm not sure which other Chazana was, whether it was Quartin or someone else was taking less. When the president of the show asked him this, whether it was in some other town, he said. He says, "Zent gerecht, you know, medaven de selber, yeah. Zanstimme is, yeah, so ich gitte manstimme, yeah, me, yeah. Nervos, for was nemach was ich mein Batzel? Why is he taking more? For the stillishman is right. In other words, the 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 externally they might all do the same thing, but what your great grandfather did, of course, was he was a yerushalayim who didn't just." <laughs> wait his turn in order to perform, but they paid him for the fact that he was a Yerushalayim. And, and and that itself is, again, maybe it's hagiographical, maybe it didn't occur. I'm sure you've heard it before. I think it's associated with an ongoing uh, humorous repartee between him and, uh, and, and Chazan Hirschman. They <laughs> both had very, very sharp senses of humor. And uh, so when Hirschman asked him why he was getting paid so much, he said to, oh. for the still Shimon Esra. But I mean, they had a lot of jokes that went between them. Hirschman once chided him for coming to a performance and his shoes weren't, uh, his shoes weren't sh- super shined. And, and he said to him that the reason is because when they, when you, when you're on stage, they look at your shoes. When I'm on stage, they look at my beard. Ershman <laughs> had a very tiny little beard. So. Uh, right. Right. Anyway. And, 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 and your great grandmother, of course, kept a, a very nice Hadras Bonham throughout his life. So, you know, we, we, we have this podcast, of course, not only just to satisfy people's curiosity and, of course, it's a chance to have you here. And, and I thank you for your time because I realize how, how busy you are. But what, what what do you believe? Obviously, you're, it's your mishpacha. What do you believe is the the legacy message that we can take from from Rabbi Yossela? I really believe that ultimately, ultimately, his legacy transcends music because he is a figure who managed a kind of arterial access to the Jewish heart. You know, I was in I was in Yerushalayim a few weeks ago at the bris of uh, a great nephew of mine. And of course, the boy's father is a great Talmud Chochem. And the boy's grandfather was my brother-in-law of Moshe Tversky, Zecher Tzadik B'Kodosh Livrocha. And his father and his grandfather, you know what this line is. Hashem Yikum Domov. Amen. And I felt pretty much outclassed. But when it came time to bench, reflexively, the Shirhamalos that they sang is the Shirhamalos, which is associated with my great grandfather. And I turned to one of my great nephews and I just alerted him to this fact. Um, but I said to him, I said, Yossi, this, this little boy is Yossi Dove. You know what, you know what we're talking about? <laughs> yes. He turned to this little boy and I said, Yossi, when my great grandfather 
sang this Shiramalos. He dreamt that his great, great, great grandchildren might have cousins like you and that you would be in Eretz Yisrael together. He is a touchstone. He is, in a certain sense, a, he's a vessel which by this time is considered to be Enu Makabel He's accepted to the extent that I was once invited by the Wexner Foundation to be on faculty at one of their uh, things for graduate students. And I gave a, I gave a talk about my great grandfather and his music. And the majority of those in attendance were reform cantorial students, male and female. And I played a recording for them that helped them listen to it, to what exactly he was doing at each. And to see young women who were studying to be reform cantors, to see the tears on their cheeks, tears of real, I don't know that Yerashamayim is the correct word, but a sense of connection, the sense that they were in the presence of an elevating Kedusha was a remarkable thing. And at the other end of the spectrum, we were taking my mother-in-law, and her kever is very close to where my great-grandfather is at rest. And I mentioned to the head of the kevra that I just asked him if he knew exactly, because it was dark, it was at night. He and the other members of the kevra got so excited that they had a living relative of Yosela Rosenblatt there, I was afraid they were going to forget <laughs> forget what they were there for. I'm going in a few, in a few, in a couple of days because on the yard site is a wonderful chazan, Gershon Breitstein, who has for years, not waiting for me, he and a large group of young Frum Chazonim go on Aliyah Lekever every year on the yard site and they sing they sing Lezecher Nishmasa there on Har Hazesim, facing the Harabais. And then they learn in his memory and they have a Sudas Mitzvah. He continues to produce Yarshim, that those who are trying to use this sacred vessel to establish an authentic connection with the Rabbi Shalom, he's all of their great-grandfathers, not just mine. And he is still producing Yorshim 90 years after he was called to the Yeshiva Shomala. I feel his guidance in my life, but the great pride is that I see that he's still capable of guiding the lives of people whose grandparents weren't born when he was Nifter. And it should be a Melitzirish, of course, not only for your family, but as you say, for all his Maritz of. And for all Claudius Troll that he had such a deep abiding love for Kol Shidra Sauma. Thank you so much, Rabbi Rosenblatt, for being with us. And hopefully we'll catch you again uh <laughs> to fill in uh for my erstwhile colleague. Be well, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 